0: our words go out in the back porch. <laughs>
1: Grandpa says go on the back porch.
2: <laughs> Welcome to the Chase Outdoors podcast. We got a special episode for you today, something that we've been looking forward to putting together. We decided that we wanted to do something. We were calling the Legends Editions of the podcast, and we got a really special guest with us today, Milton Curry, who is the 1956 Beard Growing Champion of Phoenix, North Central Avenue, and he's got a, a broad background and a bunch of cool hunting stories that he's going to tell us today. And we're going to get into you know, some of the different aspects of what it was like to, to hunt a little bit longer back in the day compared to now and uh milton thanks for joining us how you doing today
0: uh, i'm doing real well for an old man
2: <laughs> yeah milton milton's got, got a real positive attitude he's good to be around also i got uh dylan curry with me dylan how you been uh any updates on hunting stories
1: doing well uh, wrapped up the last guided hunt for the year and uh no, we got more hunts coming up though
2: yeah spring is right around the corner we're already talking about it and planning it and you guys got some javelina hunts coming up you're doing i decided to to not participate this year i'm gonna pass on that but you had a had a good deer hunt i know you're putting a video together you want to talk a little bit about that
1: yeah i've finally have got got started on the editing of the the coos deer film from mine and keegan's hunt this uh this november we did a backpack hunt and had a ton of fun saw it 17 bucks in like two and a half days and Went, a, went up into the wilderness and killed a buck with an AR, so that was kind of cool. <laughs> How far did you pack in? Was the total hike like two trailhead to camp? I think it was about five and a half miles. Five and a half miles. It's, yeah, it wasn't terrible, but it was all straight up, so that yeah, it's terrible. A, yeah, taking the AR
2: AR fifteen though is probably a nice little luxury, much lighter and easier to keep in the pack. It makes a surprisingly good pack
1: rifle. They <laughs> it fits nicely, and it's not doesn't have you know that awkward off balance weight like a like a long gun. But um, I felt very very under undergunned once i got up there and saw the caliber of deer that we were finding and had wished that i did not bring that gun so
2: you might hear in the background dylan's shuffling through a bunch of old pictures milton was kind enough to to bring some photographs maybe we'll find a way to to share some as we go through some of these stories but uh milton it's pretty cool to see some of these photos of areas i've been to uh you know 50 years back 60 years back you know times that you lived Uh, i wanted to ask you you know what got you into the outdoors how long ago did you start hunting how old were you approximately you know what got you into the outdoors at the time you were you know i'm assuming a kid
0: well to begin with i i have i i have for a long time felt very fortunate that my father uh hunted for deer in the state of Arizona probably even before I was born so it just came natural to me as a a teenager that he would take me deer hunting with him even though I couldn't hunt deer at that early age because in those times you had to be 16 years or older to legally hunt deer with a big game rifle in Arizona
2: what time what time period like give the you know give the audience a time period you talking and when you you know well, say back then
0: th- that would be let's see. Uh, well, well let's just put it this way. Uh, and I was born in nineteen thirty two. Okay. Okay. And then uh, well at sixteen years of age later than nineteen thirty two I could legally hunt deer in okay. Arizona with a big game rifle
1: roughly you know, 48 1948 late, okay. late 40s early 50s is what we're talking about time frame wise
0: yeah uh so uh, i was i was fortunate enough to uh, be around hunting at a very early age and uh uh i will always be thankful for that uh, some some of my greatest memories have been either on the lake fishing or hunting and some of those honeys later on in life were from the North Kaibab.
2: Tell us but, about maybe tell us about your first your first deer hunt. First okay. time you went out deer hunting.
0: Uh when I when I turned sixteen as a gift, my father gave me a model ninety four Winchester <laughs> rifle. Okay. Okay, a thirty thirty caliber. And uh at that time Uh, Most of our hunting was done either around the Camp Creek area or uh, the uh, Campwood area. Okay. So my first deer that I took was in the Campwood area. And uh, I I will always remember it because that was the first year I was able to hunt legally for big game with my own rifle, and the sad part of it was I had my right arm in a cast. (laughs) Uh, I broke my arm on a Wednesday in intramural football at Phoenix Union High School. I was devastated, not from the break, but the fact that I might not be able to go hunting.
2: Right, you were looking forward to that hunt. Yeah. Yeah,
0: my dad was leaving, taking me. Uh, we were going to leave on a Friday morning, which is uh, the opening day of uh, deer season in Arizona. The last Friday of October is sort of a holiday in some places. Right, and uh, But I got through it, and believe it or not, even with my alarm in a sling, I was able, and I still don't know why or how, but I was able to raise that gun, shoot the trigger... And take my first buck.
2: So you're just shooting offhand, offhand 100 yards. that's right. How about how far you uh, think?
0: I I would say it was probably around 100 yards or 125 no more. Okay. Okay. And I was fortunate I had not only my dad, but I had an uncle or two that was with me. Okay. Uh, and, and one aunt that I can recall. So it was, you know, uh, quite a thing that uh, with my dad. Arm in a sling and everything, it it stuck with me my whole life. That you know,
1: was that that model 1894? There's a story about your dad getting that gun, or was it the savage that he got with that gun? You want to tell that story? They
0: both of those stories go together, actually. Yeah, okay. This model 94 that my dad gave me uh uh it, I'll go back even to when he bought it now he purchased this gun you got to remember back then he purchased this gun for $15 okay <laughs> but not only that he in the $15 package he received a hunting knife a belt older hunting knife plus a shell belt okay, okay uh so it it has been in the family for quite a while, but uh in those days uh in in downtown phoenix uh it was Penny and Robinson they had a uh i guess you'd call it a contest, and they set up a set of scales right there at Central avenue and I believe Monroe. Okay. Not far from their little place of business. And the first buck that was weighed in in the deer season would receive a rifle as a gift. That rifle, the 300 Savage that my dad owned later on, was given to him by Bill Penny uh, from Penny and Robinson to bring in the first deer of the season, which he took Incredible. that deer over in the area of, uh, oh, from Camp Creek a little ways uh, towards uh, Bartlett Dam. Over on a hillside that's called, was then nicknamed Old Kentuck. <laughs> and he he was the first one. To, and he received that 300 Savage, and they engraved it. Uh, with his name and whatnot on that, and that 300 Savage is still in the family collection, I believe it's in the uh, uh, safe uh, at my son's house.
1: I, I think Doug has the Savage, and my dad has the Winchester
0: uh that's good well he they they asked me if they could swap and i says that's fine once i gave them to you as long as it's in the family i didn't care
2: so the place that was given i'm want to go back a little bit the place that was given away the, the gun was this like a local like a sportsman's house or something I yes mean, he's it was sporting it goods was. store
0: there were only two sportsman houses and they were both in in downtown phoenix so, uh bell's sporting goods and penny and robinson understood okay those two and uh, uh uh my dad knew both of them very well in fact uh i can still remember uh as a young man young fellow i should say uh uh george bell and his wife i can't remember her name might be an Alma, they would give me a, a a christmas gift each year really and one year it was a, a block of uh 22 rifle shells because they knew that I, I had a 22 that my dad had given me later on, and uh, you know
2: Wow, times have changed. They
0: were super neat people.
2: Yeah, times have changed. people are fighting over boxes of 22 oh. <laughs> shells now. Times have really changed. Oh so when you got ready for hunts back then, you know it just seems like it's, it was so much more simple. What was it like, you know, preparing to whether it's hunting or fishing? What was it like I mean, as far as type of gear you guys took? seems like it was a lot more simple.
0: Well, it was, uh, of course, while I was still young, uh, I didn't have to do too much preparation. Thankfully, my dad took care of that, because I, you know, at the early ages then, I was still in high school. So, uh, I I guess I never really recognized the fact that he was pretty good at putting things together, you know, because he had been doing it already for quite some time. And I can still remember that uh, when we would go to Camp Hunting and he would put it together uh, quite frequently, generally, there were other members of our family or close people that were with us. Like, uh, I can remember, oh, uh, my Uncle Al was, would go with us sometimes. Okay. Uh, sometimes a, a longtime friend like Bill Krauss would go with us. Uh uh, just different people in our family, and uh, my dad would take care of all of the food. Okay. And this was a high-dollar stuff. And it's then, just like Dylan. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and then at at the end of the hunt, all of those that partake was partaking in that hunt, they had to cough up two dollars a piece for their food. Okay. <laughs> You know, uh, things have changed a little.
1: Right. What I'd give to have this Ford truck in the in this picture.
2: Why don't you uh, describe the picture a little bit, Dylan? It's like, take that I think there's a little description on the back.
1: Uh, that one doesn't have a description. What's going it, on there, Milton? We got a picture
2: uh, that he brought with him today. Two giant mule deer in the back of an old 1957 Ford pickup truck, and yep. it's Milton. What's going on there?
0: Well, this was one of our trips to the Kaibab the north kaibab uh and it would have been taken uh, uh on the east side okay uh, which uh, phoenix was, phoenix put, arizona
2: uh, to kaibab then uh, what from phoenix arizona to the kaibab in 1957 what kind of trip was it that
0: it was a, it was a long tough one it it was it we had to go up through uh Oh Prescott, and go on over to Oak Creek Canyon, and zigzag around, and uh, till we got out into the uh, reservation country. And uh, it was quite a chore. And I can remember uh, several of those trips that uh, uh, will always be in my mind because no two trips were alike. Okay. You, yeah.
2: You,
0: we never knew what the weather was going to be like on the North Kaibab. Coming out of the Salt River Valley, it's just two different worlds. So, I I can remember one trip uh, coming back from the Kaibab. We had our snow chains on the vehicle until we got all the way back to Prescott. Wow. So, you know, you just didn't know about the weather. But we always sort of look forward to a snowstorm up there right around Thanksgiving. And, uh... Uh, the snow and the weather seem to bring the big bucks out.
2: You know? And you guys, you guys uh, got two of them in the back of the truck. How, what do you got going on there? That picture. Well, Tell us about it.
0: Uh, uh, I'm looking at this picture in this thing, and this particular one. Let's see now. The
1: the buck on the right is is, is my, my great grandpa's buck. Yeah, your dad. Yeah. That buck is is mounted in my dad's front room. That's in the kibab corner yeah so we still have that deer too okay
2: what, what size class i mean what does it look 170 it's a
1: hundred and mid 180s it's uh three point on the left and uh non-typical five on the right
2: milton when you're hunting the kaibab at the 1957 what are you guys looking for in deer you just shooting the first good buck are you even thinking about size or uh, the, 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 the two that are in this picture, is that a pretty typical size of what you saw out there? I mean, what are you guys thinking you're out there on that hunt? If you're making the trip, it had to be like the promised land still, you know? If you're going up there, you had to have hopes that you're going to get something bigger, right?
0: Yes, that's absolutely correct. Uh, I think in our case, and, and most hunters that went to the Kaibab, they had their eyes set on a big one. Okay. And, uh,. And rightfully so, because, like you say, it's quite a chore to get there. Yeah. Time-wise and cost-wise and everything. And when you get up there, you're going to make the best of it. Sure. And uh, I can remember on one of these hunts right here, uh, uh, some of the people that were with me on this hunt. But uh, I can see... Oh, hunting with my dad, and when he took this buck, we were up on this hillside, oh, back, we were, oh, we were up on that South Canyon Road in one of a, I would say one of the minor, uh, uh, canyons that we were hunting in, uh, there was plenty of snow on the ground, ice, pretty slick, and, uh, he took this buck up there, and, uh, there was a what you would call a Jeep road at the bottom, and we had to get it down to there uh, because my dad had a friend by the name of Ed Keno, who every year hunted it up there. And he was the only individual that I ever knew in the beginning that owned a four-wheel drive vehicle. Okay. He had a Jeep, and he hollered up at my dad, if you guys can get it down to here, we'll take it into my truck. Well, we started down that hill sort of sliding. It was slick with ice and snow with this buck. And uh, about halfway down, my dad slipped. And he fell right on this buck. And one of the prongs jabbed him right between the ribs. Uh, uh, It didn't do a whole lot of damage, but it scarred it up pretty close. Uh, He carried that scar all the rest of his life. Really? Yes. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it really did. And we were fortunate that it didn't do more damage. But we got it down to Ed Cano's, and uh, he, he took it to where we camped. Uh, so
1: that now, guy being the only dude with the four-wheel drive at the time, they're going up there in station wagons and two-wheel drive old Ford pickups and putting rocks in the back of them so they got better traction. And
0: that That's absolutely right. That was... Our first chore when we got to the Kaibab was to empty the back of the truck, load it down with about three to four hundred uh, pounds of big rocks, and put the tire chains on. And that was our four-wheel drive. <laughs> if you do it right, you could do pretty well. You really could, because we went over some stuff that only Ed Kano and my dad could do. <laughs> I wouldn't advise it now.
1: Uh. So, there's a there's a buck in my office here that's up in the upper left-hand corner, the way I'm sitting in the room, real bleached out, set at four-point typical antlers with eye guards. Nice, pretty buck. And for a long time, that's been the buck in question that you didn't know if it was shot in 79 or 80. We didn't know which decade that that Kaibab deer came from, that one right there. Well, we have an answer. Oh, there's a date on the back? It, on the back of this picture. On the back of the picture? The back of this picture says 1979 from when it was developed. So you have an answer, and that's the only picture I've ever seen of that deer, not just the antlers. So you were saying something along the line. Do you guys' family killed a kaibab deer for the last, it was like, well, I guess four decades? Well, we know we have, some of the bucks are from 50s, 60s. 70s. That that buck being, I I don't know of any that were shot in the 80s though. Hmm. That we ha- that we have. We we. Did you guys t- make any trips in the 80s up there? Uh. So we have them from the 90s, 2000s, and the and currently. In well, I
0: I can remember this. I used to keep track. There was one period of time that I went. I know 15 years in a row to the Kaibab. <laughs> uh, and that uh.
1: Back, back when you could just buy a tag.
0: Almost. Yeah, it, you still had to put in for it, but it was like, uh, you know, five, six, seven thousand permits split between the east and the west side of the Kaibab. So there was never a, really a problem about getting drawn for the, the Kaibab. And uh, that was, uh, I guess that was my one big outing to look forward to each year was going to the kaibab
1: it's interesting though you look back at the statistics and they were they were trying to kill a ton of deer up there because their the population numbers were so high but the amount of participation in that hunt was actually pretty low for who went and actually utilized their tags because like specifically the late 50s when they had that big die off i think in like 54 that i was reading about that they only took like 1,200 deer off the Kaibab that year, and they lost somewhere around 10,000 just due to that winter that that's, year.
0: That's exactly the way I remember it. The loss was around 10,000.
1: And just going so, around and counting winter kill in the springtime after that to come up with that number. But even with that, the high, high tag numbers back in the day, they weren't even putting a dent in the deer population up there.
0: I can remember walking, when we hunted the, ice, the east side, that was basically a, a winter playground for the deer. They would come off the high country and move into the sagebrush and the juniper and all that kind of stuff. And that was that was our winter range. And when the real bad winter came, you could see on the cliff rows as high as the deer could reach. Skin it down, take everything off of it. What the main stock?
2: When you guys were out there hunting, you were were you cognizant of the like the plant life out there? Were you thinking about food sources, or were you guys just out there like you just knew where to go and you're out hunt for deer? I mean, what is your deer hunt like then? Like, I feel like in a in a sense, Dylan and I, and for a lot of many other people. You know, we put so much time invested into how to find the deer, the strategies to hunting the deer, getting to food sources or water sources, more specifically for bear. I mean, what are your guys' strategies in the 1950s? You just in the pickup looking for deer, just going to, you know, the honey holes that you knew, or was there strategy in it? Uh,
0: There there was a little strategy involved in it, uh, and it goes back to, Oh, one of my dad's longtime friends and mine and others, uh, that uh, he has been hunting the, the Kaibab. And he talked to my dad and he says, now look. And he was up there. When we he would first get out of his truck on the east side, he would walk around and make a circle around through the trees, brushes and everything. And if he did not come across any sign, he says, Now, Al, he says, uh, If there's no sign here, that means they have not even come down to the east side, and you've got to go up high. So then we w- and we did that a time or two. We'd get on what was called the, uh, oh, I can't remember that road now, but it went up by Kane's Ranch and would actually work up onto a ne- new level. Oh, I'd say about halfway to the top. And we made camp up there a couple of times when it was a a real, I would say, a warm in comparison. Because I have seen the time, and this one particular time, uh, it was a real cold one. And we were camped down in South Canyon, and the ground was frozen. And we had a tough time just driving the stakes in to put the tent up. Now, the good part of it was that uh, when you came out in the morning, everything was frozen. Okay, but about three o'clock, it would fall out. The bad part was at four o'clock, it started to refreeze. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's a reoccurrence cycle. Uh, so
0: there've been some cold campouts, you might say, up there during the time, but. Uh, uh, the, our early hunt, uh, and I've got to give credit to Wally Blanchard, who was my dad's longtime friend, and I got to know him extremely well, the best bass, bass fisherman that ever came out of Arizona.
2: Oh, yeah. Wally, and you got some pictures, you guys were, you guys were some uh, bass fishers. Tons of bass pictures in this album. Uh, yeah,
0: uh, Wally was a terrific guy, I loved him, uh, I loved him and his wife. So, anyway.
1: um, while, while we're on Kaibab, I'm going to hit. The last of my favorite pictures out of out of this stack of, this buck has a has a cool story, and in this picture we've we've evolved to the Chevrolet pickup, <laughs> and we've got great grandpa and my grandpa's brother Chuck and my grandpa holding holding his buck that he brought back, and this looks like you obviously came back to Phoenix with, with this deer and probably took it at the house.
0: I I I, I remember that very clearly. It, it was. It'll never leave my mind. Uh, my dad, my brother Chuck, and myself were hunting. We were camped on the east game. No, we were on the east side. Uh, yeah, we were in South Canyon. We were on the lower country, and <clears throat> hunting had been slow, tough. This one particular morning, uh, my brother and I, I uh, goes to me and I said, "Let's just hunt right out of camp today." And he agreed, and so we just started, we crossed, uh, we were on one side of the road, we didn't even have to cross, we were on that side. We started off through the uh, junipers and the sagebrush and everything, and we got out there, oh, probably about a half a mile, maybe three quarters at the most. And all of a sudden, this big buck jumped out of the brush, right in front of us, to my left. Well, my brother was on the left at the time, and he up and fired a shot, and he missed. And he hollered at me, shoot him, Mel, shoot him. <laughs> so then I, I quickly decided that he had given him to me permission okay, to go ahead. Okay, yeah, there moved, it is. This is yours. And I shot him. And the deer stopped in his tracks, fell over on his back, feet up in the air. And I said to him, he was just a little ways away from now, I said, Chuck, I think it's all over and we started walking towards him he he went down oh maybe 40 yards at the most away 50 yards somewhere in that area and we got about halfway over and for some
2: no reason him die. He was just right in there
0: <laughs> that deer rolled over on his feet got up and ran off i couldn't believe it and i said let's go after him well Fortunately, all the deer did was go over the next little rise and into the little draw, and he was he was there completely dead. Later, we looked through it, and the bullet had gone through his heart. So, uh, how he went that other forty or fifty yards, I don't know. But anyway, we had this buck, so we field dressed it out, and we got a, We were thinking about how we was gonna get it back over the camp. Would,
2: that's the. I'm not even thinking about camp. How'd you get the deer home? (laughs) That's going to be
0: my next story right right, now.
2: Jump the gun.
0: (laughs) We were thinking the same thing. Now, how do we get this guy home? All of a sudden, we heard something, and it was a vehicle, and it started coming up from the lower ground up through the sagebrush, and all of a sudden, here come a man and his wife in a Jeep, and they came pulled up to us and looked at that deer, and he says, you know, We've seen that deer two or three times. We've been looking all over for him, but I guess we can stop looking now. And we talk for a while, and and, they get, and the fella says, "Well, where are you camps? I says, "Over on the South Canyon Road." He says, "Put him in my jeep. I'll take him home for you." <laughs> and that's how we got it over to our camp.
2: How do you was, get how do you get a deer home though, from oh, the Kaibab oh, all the way? Okay, because I'd imagine that's like twelve hours more. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be almost like...
1: Uh, if it, yeah, if it was taking you six this, and a half, seven to go to Payson back then.
2: I mean, how... I'm just trying to put, wrap my head around how you got the deer home and good. There's no gas stations, I'd imagine, with ice. Was that even an option? It wasn't, didn't have to be an option. Like I
0: tell you, the ground was frozen. Got it. Okay. Okay. We, we field dressed and hung the deer. Okay. okay. Uh, and while they finished doing some other hunting, the deer froze solid okay when we got ready to leave we put bedding down in the back of the truck and then covered it over with all the other bedding that we had and when we got back like to your phoenix blankets? your blankets blankets bedrolls etc when we got back to phoenix they were still frozen solid check, and check
1: your bedroll for ticks after yeah. that yeah. one
0: uh <laughs> that that was one of the benefits of a real cold winter uh so we didn't have that problem. And, and we would uh, lay it out and do our own butchering right there at my dad's house. Yeah, there was It was pretty involved. I can, I can remember, so, oh, different times on the kaibab. And, you know, as, as tough as those hunts were at times, there was never a bad one.
2: Right. No, it doesn't say sounds like you guys are just out there having, uh, having a good I, old time.
0: I've come home from the Kaibab, and generally we were there a week. Uh, I don't know how my wife put up with me, but it was that way.
2: How long have you been married, Milton?
0: Uh, only 65 years. Yeah,
2: going strong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, I I have to believe that some of those trips to the Kaibab uh that they, they make a they make their own stores you might say i i have a sort of a pet story that i've only told a few people but later on in life i was i was uh, working i was an electrician and i was working down south out of the Tucson local and uh, we were working on uh, the the center then. they were building a new and uh, this one elderly man, who I thought was old, <laughs> he really wasn't, He's was probably my age, he came to me one day and he says, Milt, I understand you uh, have been hunting the kaibab in the past. I said, yeah, I have. He says, well, I drew a permit for a doe permit on a hunt up on a kaibab. I said, can you tell me about where I should hunt? And uh, I proceeded to tell him, I says, well, if you get over... Uh, up through uh, House Rock Valley, take that road that go that has a big sportsman sign on the on the road there. Go back on that uh, South Canyon there, and if you get in there, only about five or ten miles, the, the, it starts to get thick with the juniper and all that kind of stuff and thickest. And you go through a little little canyon uh, on both sides, and then it's got a draw on on each side too, and it makes a little saddle he says, a lot of times we've gone right through there, and it seems to be a passageway for deer. And he kept doing it. Well, I never thought anything about it. About 10 days later, after he came back on and and we got together, he says, Milt, it worked perfect. (laughs) I said, what do you mean? He says, I was coming down through there. And I I got into those little trees and a little valley, and all of a sudden, here come the deer over at the pass, <laughs> 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 and they were going to cross and go over, and I got my deer right there, <laughs> you know, first shot, one shot. He had a he had a cabin rented over at Jacob's Lake, and uh, oh, he was had, and he says not only that but here comes some guys in another vehicle and they helped me load it and put it away and everything <laughs> there you go
2: the camaraderie between sportsmen oh. then and now seems to be different you uh, know it just seems to be everybody was out there just trying to have a good time and willing to help each other you know just now i don't want to say you know, hunters don't get along but it doesn't seem like the camaraderie was the same in all your stories so far <laughs> You know, there's, there's mention of, okay, this person helped me or this random stranger did this. You know, it sounds like every time you were out there, there was another sportsman, you know, that you guys were kind of in alliance and everybody was of the same understanding and if it wasn't an issue, you guys were hunting in similar spots or anything like that. It just seems different than, than now to me. I,
0: I I agree with you. Uh, I, th- I think uh, back then, of course... I can visualize some of the things that took place. And I also can remember that over the years on the Kaibab, there was there were several little groups of people that were there every year that they could be. So they sort of got to know each other. Like right. like this Ed Kano fan I told you about, him and his wife, they came up there and spent the whole season. They were the only ones that I knew that had an Airstream trailer gas fired and kept warm and everything else <laughs> big time yeah big time uh ed Cannell would would have broken his neck to help you mm-hmm. yeah it was just one of those things uh i don't know
2: was were guided hunts a thing at uh, that time were guided you no know? Uh,
0: i'm I'm trying to think uh, about a guided hunt but i i i really don't honestly know of an individual using a guided hunt. Uh, is- I only only heard about it, but never was around or with people that were. Hmm. Uh, I I know uh, I I know a, a couple of funny stories about <laughs> the Kaibab and and longtime friends. I won't even mention their names. Uh, both of them are deceased now, but they. Instead of going into the Kaibab itself proper, they turned and went up another canyon across House Rock Valley, and they had horses. Well, they were uh, one of them had borrowed a horse, and the other, other one was his. Anyway, they were going up this steep trail in this canyon, and this one horse slipped and fell and went over the side. And it happened to be that this horse it, it was a borrowed horse, and this individual was devastated. He said, here, I maybe room a rifle, the the saddle, and killed a horse. So he hiked all the way back down and got her over underneath and, and got down in the thickest, and he came up on this little place in an opening, and here was this horse munching on some grass. <laughs> he said it was unbelievable. It was beat up. But we took him back to camp, and we sort of, Tied him up and took the weight off of him. And poured all the lemon we could get on the hide and the scraps and everything, and we got him back home. So, there is some different stories. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what uh, what other big game species do you remember being popular? You know, like other than other than mule deer hunting. What other big game were guys and girls out there hunting at those times? Well, our- I uh.
0: If a, if a person was really, really anxious to score something big, he would have to go after one of the buffalo up there. And that's... uh.
1: That's, tell tell that's, us that story about your... Was it Uncle Howard?
0: That's right. I know what you're thinking, Bill. I'll tell you that story, too, because... No, Nobody uh,
1: can get mad at you for it anymore. <laughs> uh,
0: He's he not around to, to defend himself. But w- w- <laughs> w- My Uncle Howard was one of my uncles that hunted with us regularly, and him and I had teamed up this one day, and I was on one side of the canyon and he the other, so we could both watch the other side for the guy and if he kicks something up. Well, we were about halfway up this canyon, and I looked over and I could see this bull buffalo. And uh, I just watched it with my field glass and watched, and I spotted my uncle, and he was in a direct line of this bull. <laughs> well, it was a long way, pretty long ways across the canyon, so I thought, oh, shucks, just watch it. And sure enough, he walked right up to this uh, tree, and the bull was on the other side, and my uncle came around that way and was face-to-face with this bull. Fortunately, everything went well. The bull turned around and took off. <laughs> I, when we got back to camp, my Uncle Howard was telling me about this face-to-face deal he had come upon this b- bull, buffalo. I never in my life told him that I watched the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> I never did.
1: Uh, he, he's uh, just uh, waiting uh, for him to get plowed by this yeah, thing. Yeah, <laughs> I,
0: I, I never I never told him uh Yeah, about me watching the whole scenario play out
2: there. (laughs) So You know, uh well you know Dylan and I have uh you know, a particular interest in hunting black bears. Were there people hunting bears in the fifties and sixties? Was that a thing or when do you think guys kinda when do you think that became a thing in Arizona from what you remember? In the fifties and
0: sixties. I wasn't aware of bear hunting. Okay. Uh, it was I. Uh, the closest I came to bear hunting was I had a friend of mine, electrician, and, and a good friend of my dad's that. Uh, oh, he did a lot of deer hunting, but he he took a bear one deer season, and it, it was uh, an unexpected happening uh bear tags were really unknown and things like that a bear you take a bear a bear was a bear and uh all of a sudden deer hunting he came upon this bear that was traveling right through his area and he took it and uh i'm trying to think about where it was when he took it and it wasn't too far from the campwood area at the time uh the old time Campwood area was pretty well narrowed down to one or two ranches and the rest of it was just open wild ground, you know? Yeah. Uh, Today, I think there's subdivisions in there.
1: (laughs) Is that right, Dylan? That area you're talking, the Campwood Road, that would be like the 17A, 17B boundary would be west of Prescott. And so a bunch of that's Prescott National Forest and, there's a couple good-sized ranches in there, the ORO and the YOLO ranches, a bunch of that stuff.
0: So, we'll get back to the bears. I uh, I didn't know anything about bear hunting, really, uh, or people that did. Uh, I think, uh, like I chose it at one, was sort of out of character, you might say. Uh, and I don't know when it really became... Uh, Hunting as a sportsman was associated. Uh, Later on in life, uh, I was uh, living in the summertime uh, in Payson area, and I was working uh, as a a, a horse wrangler for a friend. A fellow I worked for was named Floyd Pyle, old-time family in the Tonle Basin country. And he had a small ranch over on Bonita Creek. And being a rancher, theirs uh, were not too uh, well liked around a herd of cattle. They don't <laughs> get along too well. So like uh, the mountain lion, which was number one uh, on a herd of cattle. And they uh, uh, always held lion dogs at one time. Floyd had nine nine lion dogs. He kept on his ranch. That was the first time that I really, really took notice on uh, a bear or a lion. And I guess that one summer, uh, when, uh, that I was working for him, wrangling horses over there at the, boy scout camp. Uh, he told me a story, and oh, it, it it really hurt. He had he had nine lion dogs there, and he would uh, during the winter time he would hunt lion uh, you gotta remember the economics involved here because at that time uh, the Arizona Cattlemen's Association would pay a $50 bounty to uh, for bringing uh, a, uh, a lion well a $50, what, uh, $50 bounty they, on a lion yeah. that was a
1: lot of money back in the day
0: Hey, back then that was, you know, as you're a small small ranch man, fifty dollars was a pretty good paycheck, and this one winter Floyd had taken eight, eight, eight lion, so add that up, you can see it was a pretty substantial fund for those days, but uh, and then later on, uh, he was hunting in the Madazelles which was boundary lines up through there where they run cattle and everything. And unbeknown to him, the Federal Wildlife and Game put out coyote poisoning. And he did not, was not aware of it, or, but it was put out. And one of his trips uh, into the Matazells, out of his nine dogs, eight of them died.
2: Oh, wow. oh man. He right. had
0: one. Dog, he had one. One lion dog left, and his name was Trailer. And uh, I stayed in a tent over at Cole's Ranch at the Boy Scout headquarters, and Trailer actually would sleep with uh, my tent every night over there. And every day that we'd go on the, take the scouts out on their trails, Trailer would go. So, uh, how
1: how much time did you spend up there, part of the C and that stuff?
0: Well, I don't know. I I was probably three different summers that I worked up there. I, uh, at the, at the end of the, when the regular Boy Scouts went home, they usually wound up, uh, well, through the month of June. And then the 4th of July came around, and they'd have the big 4th of July barbecue in Payson. And, uh. So they they would take us all in to the, the big barbecue, and it, it was a it was a great time. Of course, Payson was a small, you might call a two-track town.
2: What you, when we when uh you came up this year in September, and you hung out at camp on my elk hunt, you were telling me the story about what it took to get from Phoenix to Payson, and I was it kind of blew my mind. What so? For those, uh, you know, for the people local to the state, they would understand anybody that's not in Arizona, obviously Phoenix being the capital, uh, Payson to us now is an hour and 15, hour and 20-minute drive north, uh, you know, easy highway. It's You got two lanes both directions, north and south. But what was it like originally, you know, at those times, to get from Phoenix to Payson?
1: We're, we're talking Fortune. like early, early 40s here. And yeah. Okay. I, I have some film of you and your brother and your mom and dad in old downtown Payson in the 40s when you're in some of those videos you're probably only nine, ten?
0: I, uh, actually the first time I went to Payson I was five years old Uh, and my dad had friends up there that lived over on the East Verde, and her last name was Shed, and my dad had, had was given a, a, an invitation to come up and hunt deer, and I can remember that first time to Payson, like I say, I was five years old, but we went over and stayed at his house, and he was right where you could see into the, uh, the East Verde, and uh, I remember he had a big old black great dane oh he was a brute i used to have a picture of it but i i haven't been able to find it and uh, but i remember when we came home we had to backtrack then from that area over to payson and we got into payson now you're you're looking at just a gravel little road we got right in the middle of a big cattle roundup right there in right on the first edge of downtown what was pacing and we, we just had to work real slow and the cowboys would port to, uh take the cattle and sort of move them aside a little bit and we ease through
1: and, just going and, down main street <laughs> yeah
0: and of course main street was pretty rough but uh, uh it took us a while but we got out and got over on the old bush highway and, and out uh Total. Yeah, there was some
1: what was that drive like from yeah. from Phoenix to Payson in the station wagons in? Uh
0: the trip from Phoenix to Payson was a difficult hard 7-hour drive. And oh, you better molly. make sure you had your tire pump, a couple of spares or at least one with the t- uh, the necessary tools to patch a tube. Uh and and that that was that was standard uh it just was so it wasn't uncommon to, to run a tire going to pacing
1: so we've been talking about that area uh i have pictures over of my parents where your bear is at in my old room but our family took a lot of bears out of that particular area where my dad took that one in that picture but you want to tell your story about the bear that you took up there by the ranch
0: yes uh i was uh i was living in in payson at the time and i had uh, been somewhere i don't know maybe the valley but i came back and i had a had a had a little problem in my truck and i was out back maybe i was changing the generator i'm not sure now but anyway my son david came by and he says dad let's go down to the ranch and hunt for bear Well, I was ready to quit anyway, and I said, let's go before it gets too late. And I had been down to the Ellenwood Ranch, which my son Richard owned, and I had done some scouting, and I had seen very, very little bear sign except this one area. So David and I went went on down, and we got over to what we called the Whitetail Canyon. (laughs) My son Richard gave it that name. That's something later. Anyway, we got set up, and it was getting pretty late in the day, and we set our scopes up before we could look across this gully in front of us. Oh, probably across it, it was, oh, probably 250 yards or something like that at the most. And uh, it was starting to come down and getting close to quitting time. It was getting sort of dark. Anyway, we spotted this bear come over the ridge, and I got the glasses on him and watched, and I watched and uh, I says, David, I'm watching that bear. What do you think? Is, is it one I should take, a good one, or is it just, you know, just an average? And he says, Yeah, that's, that's a pretty decent looking bear. I think you ought to take it. And uh, I says, Well, Dave, you know, I only, I only have six shells in my pocket, and I was using that uh, 264 uh, Winchester Magnum, I, I loved, and I, sh- I, got set up. And the bear was sort of coming a little closer and then turning. And he said, shoot it now. So I shot. And I missed.
2: Hmm. Uh, I know all about that.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm a pretty good shooter. I have been all my life.
2: Man, you get a bear in the scope, it's a little bit different.
0: Uh, Yeah. I don't know. I, maybe I had a little bear fever. Oh, yeah. Along yeah. There. I've been there. But the second shot, he went down. But he didn't stay down. Now we're talking about a lot of tall brush too, and and I actually put him down for keeps at the fifth shot. Okay, and and David saying, "Don't you shoot that last shell? No, don't don't." <laughs> I can still hear him telling me, "Don't do that, because you're getting was late in a, the day."
1: There was a situation with a bow and arrow that yeah. happened similarly, <laughs> <laughs> with and, Aaron telling me not to
0: shoot the last so, one uh so it went down so we got our act together and we started over and started trailing him and uh i say you couldn't see him because it was so thick scattered and uh he was down and he was dead and uh oh we were we were pushing daylight but we got uh we got the bear uh field dressed out And uh, we also, there there was a couple of pretty good-sized trees just a little ways away, and we drug it over there, and we got it off of the ground. And uh, I thought, well, we got just enough time. Why don't we go ahead and skin this dude and, you know, get it ready to move out in the morning? So we did that. We went back to camp. I told uh, David, I said, you know, Bears, are elite bears. I said, maybe we uh, we had a we had a deer buggy that my dad had made at the time, and we had it down there at the ranch. So I said, let's go get that that bear, cut him up, and bring him in. So we went back, and we took flashlights, and on a little path, and we took that little wagon wheel buggy, and we loaded him up, and so say, it was pitch black then. <laughs> And we got him all back that night, back into the Ellinwood, and hung him up in the cellar where it stays cold all the time, and let him stay there that night. But uh,
1: that ain't easy to get a bear out like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, it it was different. Uh, I uh, over the years that I was down around the Ellinwood and with Richard, we did, we had horses down there, and we were continually riding the trails, looking at maps that he had. Were some of the old-time trails, and we had, we had seen bear. I know when I left the Ellingwood that year, I told him we we had seen sighted bear forty times. Now I realize some of those were duplicate sightings, but I remember one sow we saw, I think three times. She had two cubs, a light one and a dark one. <laughs> and, uh, we knew her by sight after a while. Uh but he stayed on and I had to come back to the valley and uh, I told him I reminded him uh we had, we had set 40 sightings of course he was still up there riding after I left And he says but the time I left I had it up to 70
1: that's that's you know just just in a couple of week period yeah
0: I can still remember him telling me that and so it was it was a, a good time I, I can I can remember seeing some bear up there I went into. We went into Payson one day, my wife and I, and we picked up a friend of ours that lives over in uh, Pleasant Valley, and we took our drive. We went over, and we were going to drive down that little switchback road that goes down to the OW Ranch. It's real thick with timber and everything in there, and you, 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 the, tr- the road is just sort of a cut path through the manzanita. And we were going on a nice day just showing her around because she couldn't get around any more than her age. And all of a sudden I stopped and a big old bear just walked out right across the front of the street of us and looked up at us and turned his head and just kept on walking <laughs> and went over into Manzanitas and the last I saw of him. But he, he just decided, well, this is my place. You'll wait on me. <laughs> oh, I, I, we had a lot of fun up at the Ellenwoods watching the different things
2: you know Milton I'm curious uh your perspective yeah you've been doing you've hunted and been around the industry and hunting and fishing for a long time if you can try to describe you know what do you think is the the biggest difference now from from when you started being a sportsman you know in the in the early 50s to what you see now you see us go out on the hunts and like I said you were out there in in September you know to you what do you what do you think the biggest difference is from back then to modern day hunting and fishing?
0: Well, I I believe, probably I would have to put the equipment that's available now uh, than it, what it was back 50 years ago. From uh, a tent that you might set up and find you had 12-inch icicles hanging down in the morning uh, to... Heated campers and, and uh, travel trailers and such, uh, that, that has to be probably at the very top of my list is the things to make it uh, more comfortable uh, coming and going up there and, and making your, 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 your living area more comfortable. Right. Uh, as far as hunting goes, some of those hunting episodes you can't change. You still got to get up out of that bed in the morning. You still got to go out when it's cold and be out there where you want to see something when the sun's just coming up. You can't do that staying in camp. So those are the things I think stay the same. Even so, the, the, the what would you say, the amnities, the little things that make it nicer right, around yeah. camp. But once you leave camp, it's not much different. You still gotta be there. You gotta see it. You gotta find it. You gotta be able to shoot it and recover it. And I think recovering game is big. If you're gonna shoot just to shoot something and not worry about getting it out or whatnot, then you 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 have lost most of the real true hunting fork.
1: It. Yeah, it's I, I. You you guys seem to walk a lot more i mean we walk a lot just because now kind of pressure dictates that we go further than the next person but pretty much anytime we can utilize it we're utilizing optics to hunt we're using glass to look long distances and you guys seem to get more into smaller pockets and just kind of walk in there and, and hang out and, and observe with your eyes more than than using binoculars or spotting scope or anything like that you didn't really have <clears throat> you didn't have them set up on a tripod like we do now that's for sure we We did rely on field
0: glasses uh that that was a must uh, when we first started going to the Kaibabs, field glasses were not what you would consider today to be anyway near top of the line. Field glasses and optics has exploded Uh, back even in the 50s and 60s. They really came online, some things that were unreal. But we relied on our field glasses. Uh, But, yes, uh, we we had different areas that were from camp even, Uh, or we could go up to the next canyon that we had from previous experience or from people telling us. That's a good area to hunt on foot and to be able to get in and get out. And that's something you have to take into consideration anywhere you're hunting in Arizona. If I get a deer and get a bear, can I get it out? And if so, how? And what's it going to take?
1: I, uh, think, I think some I, stuff that we hunt that we we won't hunt, hunt because... We don't want to pack things out of those spots. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can believe
0: that. I, I've seen some places, actually, on the Kaibab where I've passed up that I knew we couldn't ever get to it and get it out. I I honestly believe, well, the biggest deer that I've ever seen was on the Kaibab. And this is a story I sort of tell on myself. We, we had... Uh, we had hunted pretty hard, and the pickings were really slim and I decided to hunt this one canyon by myself one day and my My dad and my brother were back at camping i I crossed over one canyon and was looking back, and I was just stopped there and watching and looking and pretty soon i i I saw this head of a deer stick out across the canyon. And it wasn't all that far, maybe a hundred and fifty yards at the most. I could see it was a deer head, and I kept watching it and watching it and I picked up my rifle and I looked over at it and there was just this head and nose sticking through the brush in the trees. And I looked and I looked and said, Ugh, oh, just another doe And I I was a little bit disgusted. I dropped my rifle butt to the ground and it sort of made a clunk. Well, if that, when that thing clunked, that doe over there turned its head and it was a huge buck. Both of those trees on either side moved. That was his horns. And I miscalculated and did a very terrible thing as far as deer hunting went. And that buck.
1: <laughs> Rookie move.
0: That buck just took off, took about five steps and was off the next cache and gone. Never saw him again. And this was the only buck that I believe in my whole life was about 40 inches. He was unreal.
1: And and you've shot some incredibly big deer on the Kaibab too. And In fact, the only picture I have of, I think, what is your biggest buck is this group photo with you and your dad and your brother and Uncle Howard and it's it's the buck that you have at your house still your it this eight by seven that buck it's not very wide it's got a couple inlines, a couple kickers real heavy it's pretty narrow inside but that buck's like 210 215 score wise and uh, another buck that we were talking about earlier Um, the buck where you guys are sitting on the back of the chevrolet that that buck itself is 32 inches wide that's a huge deer and it's kind of the clone of of chance's deer he he shot up there a few years back they they have the same frame and they were shot 25 generations of deer apart and they got they have extra points in all the same places i
0: that deer that i have it's in my uh, office, in my bedroom at home now. Uh, I can I can visibly see when and where I took that deer. Uh, I was, and it's not the smartest thing to do. I I took off hunting on my own this day, and we were on the North Kaibab, and uh, I had come upon this, oh, a a, a big. Uh, Almost like a big sinkhole, but it was a big rounded out canyon. And it had a lot of space in the bottom and uh, small, small foliage in the bottom. And the other side, it was a good ponderosis. Just a little of everything, just perfect for a a deer or even an elk. And I I sat up there and all of a sudden I saw movement across the way. And I got all my glasses and I started watching and looking and I could see this very good buck but he would only move a little bit each way each time and he would half of him would be behind the bushes and the trees and I just sat there and waited and waited and waited and all of a sudden he stepped into an opening and I shot one shot and it was all over and I hiked over to him about the (coughs) time I got over I didn't know it, but to the other end of this big bull, there was another hunter, and he was watching this same deer, and he couldn't ever get a shot, and I happened to be the (laughs) one that got shot. He came over there to me, and we talked and everything, and I field dressed him, and I went back and uh, got him dressed out, and I brought the one-wheel buggy over there, and I made a mistake when I got over there to put the deer on that buggy. The tire was down on it. <laughs> next day, I put him on the buggy and tied him down. But I just propped it up where it stuck up in the air, the other two handles. And I brought a tire pump back in there with another person. We pumped him up and, and rolled him right on out back to camp. But uh, that that's that buck. And I will still remember it, that I was probably a matter of 10 seconds away from not shooting it. Hmm. This other hunter would have taken it.
1: Still, still had competition, even in the 60s. And still shared a steak,
2: <laughs> you know. Still took him some meat over. That's awesome. Um, well, I guess I gotta. I have a couple more questions that are a little bit different. But if you had uh, advice for somebody like me, you know, the younger generation of hunters.
0: I would have to say each individual maybe be a little bit different. Let's just put you in this category uh, of being a little bit different. <laughs> Uh, I've been told that because I've been told that my whole life. Yo- uh, younger, younger hunters have some of the same ambitions, and, and we go back to an old saying: "Where there's a will, there's a way." And I, I think, uh, even though some of the the statistics and, and of, of hunting have changed, uh, but I think uh, basically, if a hunter, whether he's going out for whitetail or mule deer, or bear or everything, if he puts his mind to it and uh, does it with. Uh, there has to be some emotional. I don't know what you might say to something emotional to make a hunter do what he does. It doesn't just come naturally, you know. Uh, every hunter started out young, most likely, and he's he learns as he goes along. His mistakes and what works and what doesn't, and that uh, that that's probably one of the key things that uh, each hunt you do, you improve a little bit. It may be just the type of food you take, <laughs> or what you don't have to take, and it's a burden. And, and you, I'd like to think that that was one of the the things that I grew up in is that uh, my dad. He may have not been the greatest hunter, but he knew how to make camp when he had everyone satisfied when we went. I mean, if if it was something that was necessary to have, he had it. And it was, you know.
1: That's, that's a curry trait. You just bring it all, make uh-huh. sure you have everything. Well,
0: uh, <laughs> up to a point, my dad didn't really overstock, but he had a continual list of things he knew that were mandatory. Uh, I I know some people without name take everything but the bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, no, I think uh, hunting is uh, a great worthwhile activity. uh, Even though, I'll put it this way. All the times I went to the high kibab I never I never uh left there with a bad feeling <laughs> I don't care if I had a deer or not it was a good hunt
2: that's how it should be I mean in my opinion you know it's a, you're being out being out there for the experience and for just to live life and the hunt's a plus you know if you get a buck that's a plus you get the meat that's a plus but you know, my thing is just getting outdoors is a big release for me. And I I wish more people saw the value in just being in the country and being in the woods and, and experiencing the hunts and the camaraderie that comes with it and the stories and the struggle. I think it teaches, I think it teaches really good values. You know, I mean that when I'm out in the wilderness, I, I quickly have a newfound appreciation for my toilet and for my refrigerator and for my bed. And I think that you know now, the way humans are and the way we've evolved is everything is convenient you know the your your hands free and your phone is convenient, and you have a you have a device that you talk to that turns your lights on and off that's real convenient, but the reality of life I think is it's kind of it's kind of brutal, you know and it's not life isn't easy, and you learn that when you're out in the country and you're out hunting and you're out experiencing those things and I think there's a lot of value for the next generation of hunters to to pick up and kind of tap into that you know just like your family did from the 50s and beyond it was something that was a it was always a big deal to you guys whether or not well you were successful a lot but like you said you always left there with a good feeling and there's there's something about that you know you leave the hunt and that self-reflection of what you just accomplished or what you just didn't accomplish and how it resonates with you and the memories that you made you know i think that's that's really important
0: There is never a hunt that you go on that was like the one before. Yeah. Uh, And I think probably that is a good feeling that, uh, hey, this may not be the best as far as taking a game, but how we survived under conditions that maybe we got into a bad snowstorm and we got through it. And uh, that's half the battle. We got through it. Yeah. You know, and that's going to make us a, a good story and a good thing to go. <laughs> Even though we didn't see many bucks and we didn't get a, a monster scoring one. Uh, but me and my hunters, we got through it safely and had a good time. And uh, I, I don't know. I just feel like uh, I have. Uh, been blessed with being able to be out in Arizona uh, mountains, streams, oceans—not oceans, actually. Uh, if you want to count Rocky Point, they should have gave too. us Rocky
2: Point. We should have had it. <laughs> we should have had it. We, uh, should have had it.
0: we got snubbed.
1: Uh, yeah, we did. Uh, Dang, so cats uh, and birds. you know, I'm just <laughs> thankful
0: for all those things, and uh, I, I think I and I don't believe. That hunting is for everybody. Uh, it's just like any other uh, thing you participate in. There are a lot of things other people do that I couldn't or wouldn't even enjoy doing it. And uh, but like, I, like golf. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would be a poor golfer. Yeah, me too. Well, yeah, I am. Uh, <laughs> 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 I mean, I, I tried golfing once that... Over at the range with some buddies and I when we were teenagers, and I never got one off of the tea good. I <laughs> thought i told myself that that's uh, not for me. But anyhow, oh, I I've had some great memories. I want to tell you one more story. Uh, I had a friend of mine. I still have a friend of mine, Wayne Green. Uh, he worked for the Forest Service. He he, he retired from him many years ago. He now resides in uh, Idaho. Anyway. He and I had a had a ticket to go hunt the kaibab, and I knew pretty much right where I wanted to go, so we had my uh, Chevy carryall and we went in at night, and we got up there, and we were going up what was called the uh, South, no, no, South Canyon, but the, oh, it went all the way up to the top. Anyway, we got up there about halfway up, and I knew where I wanted to go, and I, so I started for camp, and I... I, I went over a little hump, and there was a big brush pile. And uh, I heard something go clunk when we went over. And I my vehicle went on just a little ways ahead, and I got out. And my gas tank had come off, and it was sitting back there about five yards from the car. <laughs> what had happened was, see, this gas tank's... Had two straps that just went up and hooked. Okay. Well, when I went over that hump, that that brush pushed that tank up, and when I went forward, the hooks were in midair, and the truck just rolled out from underneath it. So I got out and looked at that, and I thought, well, I said, "Well, this is right where we're going to camp." <laughs> so we just, we just left the the gas tank wasn't damaged. I didn't think. It just pulled the hose loose and electrical. We just left it there and went on and did our And I got a nice buck, and Wind Green got a nice buck, and my son Dan was with me, and he didn't he didn't uh, get anything then, so we, we got ready to leave. Uh, we uh, just took the truck back over there and got our, lifted that gas tank back up in place and uh, hooked it back up, and I found a little sliver of a crack in the bottom of the tank very very slim it was just a little bit damp and i had been told by some old timer i don't know was if you'd rub a bar of soap in those cracks it'll seal it so i uh, dug in our camp box and i got out an old bar of soap and i rubbed it real tight in that thing and it quit
1: Was it by chance a bar of lava soap that that camp box perpetually smells like?
0: I I have no idea what kind of soap it was. That's a
1: pro tip right there. But it worked. Lava soap?
0: (laughs) We always took lava soap with us, I tell you.
1: We we still have the old camp box that his dad built. That white white cooked wooden box that's in the garage. Oh, really? And it perpetually smells like hand soap. Anything you (laughs) put in there, any dishes, they will come out smelling like soap it's it's in the wood well
0: uh i'll tell you one more thing about that trip we came back to the day that i sold or traded that vehicle in it still had the the, the, the soap seal in there it never never leaked <laughs> and that was uh two or three years later
2: dylan you got anything else uh you want to add or any other questions for milton
0: uh probably not today probably tonight i'll probably say we, yeah, worry,
1: we out pretty good or what
0: <laughs> no
2: there' there's probably we're,
1: we're gonna have to do this again because we only touched like four pictures in this envelope and i really want to get
2: yeah i really want to get some of these pictures and find a way let's get them uh, at least like on the instagram or something like oh, yeah, that for sure get some of that out there milton i can't thank you enough for for joining us you're you're a trooper you did awesome on the microphone and you did did just fine and thanks for answering all the questions and, and all your input
1: we're gonna have to do this again and get more into the Camp Wood days and you're elk hunting we, we didn't talk anything elk. about elk or
2: antelope or none of that
1: well
0: so, I've, I've taken an antelope uh, in arizona and new mexico uh, so we'll, we'll
1: have to get into all those hunts you know, next time
0: th- th- we could spend a lot of time just talking
1: we're playing on it
2: but but thank you very much and uh you got anything else you want to add milton no
0: it's just been a pleasure being with you guys talking and listening
2: When there's a will, there's a way. When there's a will, there's a way. Those are some awesome stories and a lot of wise words there by Milton. And, you know, I just want to say appreciate everybody who, who tuned in and listened to this. We are interested in doing a couple more series, a couple more episodes on the Legend Edition, and hopefully get some more information and some old stories from back in the day. That was super cool. Thanks for joining us, Milton. Everybody else, have a great night.